Welcome to Yarden Design, a podcast on educating professionals and beginners alike on relevant topics in agriculture, food policy, and food systems. My name is Samantha Varela, and I'm a Master of Environmental Studies candidate concentrating in urban landscape design at the University of Pennsylvania. Today's episode is on a topic I find especially pressing and seemingly preventable, but quite complex. We're going to be examining the case of food waste, and I want to start out with some statistics for 2022 published by RTS. So, the first thing that the article comments is that food takes up more space in U.S. landfills than anything else. I don't find that surprising, but it's still shocking. So, how much food is wasted in America? Here's some food for thought. While the world wastes about 1.4 billion tons of food every year, the United States discards more food than any other country in the world. Nearly 40 million tons, 80 billion pounds every year. That's estimated to be 30 to 40% of the entire U.S. food supply and equates to 219 billion pounds of waste per person. That's like every person in America throwing more than 650 average-sized apples right now into the garbage, or rather, right into landfills, as most discarded food ends up there. In fact, food is the single largest component taking up space inside U.S. landfills, making up 22% of municipal solid waste, or MSW. Globally, we waste about 1.4 billion tons of food every year. So that excerpt was really helpful and I think really um, did a wonderful job in quantifying some of the food waste. But something that I want to discuss and have kind of at the forefront of this discussion is the topic of environmental justice as well. Food waste, along with really any topic that we've been discussing in this episode, is not a burden that is held equally by every person. It's really disproportionate, and food waste is certainly no exception. So it says that, you know, 219 pounds of waste per person, but really, of course, not only is that an estimate and an average, um, it's a lot higher for some people than it is for others. We have a lot of people in poverty and a lot of people as the climate crisis continues to be exacerbated with anthropogenic causes. Uh, Certainly more people and children as well are going to be um, entering poverty, which is so disheartening and unfortunate because there is a lot that we can do. And I just want to comment this because it's really, it is disproportionate. And so people really need to understand that. Um, In the previous episode where I discussed climate impacts on food, I also note that we currently produce enough food to feed one and a half times the global population. So this is not a matter of food production so much as it is a matter of food distribution. And part of that being reducing food waste. So that's just something I really want to comment because it's not that we don't have enough food to feed every person. We certainly do, but we are not going about it the right way. And so that is something that... um, really I just want to address is the underlying issue of environmental justice when we discuss these topics. And so now let's discuss one of the reasons why we waste so much food. Uh, Food spoilage, whether real or perceived, comments RTS, is one of the biggest reasons people throw out food. More than 80% of Americans discard perfectly good consumable food simply because they misunderstand expiration labels. Certainly we've all seen the sell by, use by, expires on best before or best buy labels, and I think they're quite confusing. And so in an effort to not risk the potential of a foodborne illness, we toss it in the garbage. So uh, another reason is that Americans are often impulsive in their food purchases. This is something that's just 
you know, culturally we see it. Not only do we have larger portion sizes, so naturally there's going to be more food waste accounted with that portion size, but there's also a lack of planning or shopping while hungry. In other places, people will do daily groceries and it's not necessarily, um, a suggestion you know the way that our systems are set up here it's not always feasible to do that but people uh, usually do not plan when they go shopping especially if you go shopping while hungry i know my family has always said this growing up uh, never shop on an empty stomach because you will want to buy everything everything looks good to you you think you're going to eat it all you're going to make it all and then once you finally um, you know, eat something, you're not as hungry, and you kind of maybe look back on your grocery purchases, you're like, wow, maybe I bought double what I needed. That's just because you were so hungry, you were shopping with your eyes and shopping with your stomach instead of shopping realistically. Another reason being our takeout uh, society, there's so much waste. This was certainly the case with COVID as well, where people were doing a lot of takeout. Um, one thing that you can do is not ask for napkins or utensils. You can keep a pack of reusable um, utensils with you, bamboo utensils or whatever type, stainless steel, doesn't matter, but really affordable. Um, you can keep it with you. It's something that really helps curb that waste. This is particularly if you're on the go. Certainly if you're at home, you don't have to do that. But if you've ever gotten takeout, you will probably relate to this where you are given a mass amount of napkins. It's enough for a family of 10 and you're one person or perhaps two people. So what ends up happening is if you have a car, a lot of people will, you know, keep extra napkins in the glove compartment, um, maybe in your kitchen, or you simply throw it out. You just don't need all of that. So you can also ask in a lot of these takeout apps, um, you know, third-party providers such as Grubhub, Uber Eats, they offer this option where you can choose no utensils or additional materials. And certainly if you enter the restaurant and you're, you know, doing a to-go order, you can ask the same because inherently they include those materials. Not only does it save cost for the restaurant, but it also saves waste. Uh, as for composting, this is something else that, um, can be done, but it's certainly not done. Not a lot of people compost or they uh, don't know how to compost. We're not really taught this in our society. Um, and then when people start getting into compost, there's also this misconception that you can just throw everything like anywhere. Like, oh, I can just throw my food scraps on my front you know, lawn. There's definitely negative consequences to that, and that's not the proper way to compost. Um, but in cities, they often offer either composting as part of the city, like Boston and San Francisco are wonderful examples of cities that offer composting, um, in addition to regular trash and recycling. But as well, you can uh, sometimes even have your compost picked up for a small fee, or there are certain companies that are willing to pick up your compost at no fee just because they use it for uh, you know industrial uses or whatever check locally if compost is offered in your area um, and also be careful of this green washing myth which is that a lot of restaurants will say that their to-go materials are compostable well, here's the loophole with that. They are commercially compostable. You cannot compost those items at home. So this will happen where you go to a restaurant and their cups and uh, bowls and utensils all say that they're compostable. You have to take them to a industrial composting facility. So as you're seeing here, well, I want to do good. I think I'm doing good. 
uh-oh, I'm hitting a wall. Um, part of that is because we really need to employ systemic change. And so that goes into changing the laws to curb some of this waste. Now, here's the positive. Uh, several states across the country are taking action to curb food waste and gain food recovery. Legislators in California, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, and Vermont have already passed laws that restrict the amount of food waste going into landfills. And Vermont's universal recycling law went into effect in July 2020, uh, banning food scrap waste entirely. According to the Vermont Food Bank, as a result of the new law, food donations statewide have increased 40%. That's awesome. I'm also going to note here, though, perhaps an unintended consequence of some of these things, which is illegal dumping. Now, it's not to say that, of course, we shouldn't change policy or we shouldn't have these systemic uh, policies because of these unintended consequences, but we certainly need to be aware of these consequences because when you do not offer people the appropriate route to, you know, do some of these things and to make these changes, then you can have those unintended consequences. That's just something to keep out because, again, there is no perfect solution and there's positive and negative consequences to everything that we discuss here, but I want to bring this up so that you're always being presented with both sides of the argument and never just the perfect rainbow rose-colored lenses uh, to this information because certainly that's just not the way that the world works. So there's also pending legislation in California, Colorado, and Massachusetts that would establish programs to fund private sector composting and organic collection programs. In addition, several states like Tennessee and Washington and cities like Los Angeles and Madison, Wisconsin have created food waste task forces to reduce waste, creating composting education and infrastructure and eliminating food waste from U.S. landfills. And that is coming up from the article as well, which I think is a wonderful note. And something else that I want to comment here is that they talk about these food waste task forces. Now, I know San Francisco has this and when they were, um, working on their composting program for the city, something that they did is they had people go door to door and explain in detail and educate, um, you know, people how to properly compost, how they were going to be able to successfully accomplish this change. I think that's wonderful, certainly part of what is needed, and it certainly helps in curbing that unintended consequence of illegal dumping. But I also want to say every city needs to look at their biggest issue, what they can do, and really address that. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And also to note that not every city has that privilege or those resources. If you have a task force, like 40 people working um, just on this food waste task force, then that is wonderful. Not every city has that resource. It's expensive, um, and again, certainly a privilege that not everyone may have. So that's another thing just to keep in mind. Uh, it's a great model to look at, but it doesn't mean you have to emulate it step by step. I think that's something that cities need to do better is looking at the success of other cities and then applying it carefully into the needs of their own city. And so that's just something that I wanted to comment there. Um, now, the city and state efforts are trickling into U.S. school systems too. Both Maine and Rhode Island have introduced legislation to 
reduce the amount of food waste in schools. On a national level, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, has set a goal uh, in 2015 to reduce food waste by half by 2030. So that's certainly a large goal to set, and I would love to see it accomplished. Um, another issue with food waste in schools is that usually schools are dealing with third-party providers. So these providers, it's not necessarily the school choosing to dump uh, waste, but it's that third-party provider. And that's, again, where you just have these really complex policies and systems, and you just realize it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, certainly in the case of Philadelphia, I know that one of the issues that the city faces is that food is not, um, or trash and food collection is not as frequent as it needs to be. So in some of these cities where the models are really successful, uh, there's collection two to three times a week. That is not the case for Philadelphia. A lot of schools have reported that they are dealing with collections only coming once a week, maybe once every two weeks. It's really a massive issue. You can imagine the pileup. And as well, again, they deal with illegal dumping. And again, so this is the case of Philadelphia. And that's why, you know, not every city has the same issues. So one thing that they need to do is look at illegal dumping because neighborhoods, uh, sometimes if their trash bins are filled, they'll just dump it by the local school. And so that's a really big issue too. So let's look at where our waste uh, comes from. 43% is coming from homes, 40% is coming from restaurants, grocery stores, and food service companies, 16% from farms, and 2% from manufacturers. We've already discussed some of that waste from homes, uh, whether it be buying too much and throwing it out or throwing food out because um, you're going exclusively by those dates, which we're going to address uh, right after this. But 40% from restaurants. Did you know that restaurants have, most restaurants have a 15% margin where they account for food waste. So they already know 15% we're going to throw out. So what restaurants can do is really use a better analysis to determine how much they need to purchase. There are some companies that are doing this where they are doing the analysis for restaurants and they um, even provide like free tools where you can, you know, input your costs and all of that type of information. And it tells you really more specifically what you need to buy. So that's wonderful. Um, to me, it's ridiculous that you would be willing to have a 15% margin for food waste because that's also also 15% um, of money that's being wasted. So again, when we discuss these issues, certainly I'm tackling it uh, from an environmental perspective, but there's an economic side to all of this as well. Sustainability is not inherently, um, you know, just environmental. The three sustainability pillars are economic, environmental, and equitable. And so if you're not doing it for an environmental perspective, certainly you can do it for an economic perspective. So that to me is just really silly that restaurants continue doing this. Um, as for 16% in farms, did you also know that there is an aesthetic standard? And so like this aesthetic grade for food. Now picture a peach, okay? And whatever popped in your head, it's probably perfect. It's probably that beautiful peach might look like the emoji and it, you know, there's no flaw to it. Well, that is because that is what consumers have been trained to see and to buy. And so it's the same with bananas, right? Bananas are thrown out because you go to the grocery store, there's a little brown spot on the banana. People think, oh, it's spoiling. I don't want that banana. 
you know, that's just not the case, okay? Bananas get bruised in transportation, so does other fruit. It's natural, it happens. They might not all come out looking perfect and look exactly the same, whatever you define perfect as. Um, I don't think perfect food exists. If it's edible and it's delicious, then what's the problem? I don't really care what it looks like. I kind of like the wonky looking ones perfect, uh, personally. So, if food does not meet an aesthetic grade um, on the farm, it won't even be picked for transportation because there's already this assumption that it's not going to be sold in the grocery stores and that again contributes to waste. So whether it's not being sold in the grocery store and then it's thrown out or whether it's not being um, picked on the farm and it's left to rot, it's another type of food waste. So that is part of that 16% statistic, not all of it but certainly um, a contributing factor. And then 2% comes from manufacturers. So confronting waste and solving the problem at home, the best if used by date, this describes quality. And I'm quoting here, where the product may not taste or perform as expected, but is safe to consume. The use by date applies to, quote, the few products that are highly perishable and or have food safety concern over time. Now, something that I learned and I want to relate here is that these are estimates. These dates do not have regulation. There's um, really few studies that go into them, if at all. It's just a best guess. So whether it's your best guess or a company's best guess, it's just a best guess. It's not this, you know, hardball um, date that if you consume food after this date, you are putting your health at risk. The best thing to do is to smell and taste food before throwing it out. Um, and certainly learn how to compost as well if you can or pursue some of those other methods that we discussed to help keep food scraps out of landfills because food scraps contribute to methane, a greenhouse gas with the warming potential of 300 times that of carbon dioxide. And again, when we discuss um, these greenhouse gases, they are necessary in our atmosphere, but it's their abundance that's really contributing uh, largely to this issue of global warming that then contributes to climate change. Okay, so the next thing that I want to discuss here is um, uh, what is the food waste recovery hierarchy? So most preferred is source reduction. Um, this is about simply reducing waste by not creating it in the first place. The second would be to feed hungry people. Um, the article notes here that much of the food we throw out is perfectly edible with 50 million people expected to suffer from food insecurity in 2022 alone, it is unacceptable. Food banks and shelters across the country would welcome the food that many Americans throw away. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I did comment it in another episode as well, that there is something called the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act. What this means is that you do not have liability if a person falls ill from donated food. This is a big worry that people have. I'm going to donate food. I could be held liable. I don't want to take that risk, so I'm just going to throw it out. You are legally protected against that. There has never been a recorded case of something like this happening, so why not donate food? What's the problem? Um, as well, some cities are participating in reduced food. Um, so like there's an app in Philadelphia called Too Good To Go. And what it is, is companies can participate and they can, for example, if they're doing like, let's say donut donation, I know Federal Donuts in Philadelphia participates in this and they're one of the largest donut eateries in the city. And what they do is they offer these discounted boxes at the end of the day. So let's say where a dozen donuts might cost $16, 
this is just an estimate, I'm not sure what their dozen costs, uh, they might offer a dozen donuts for let's say five or six dollars randomized at the end of the day. You can actually set a time for picking it up, very similar to a pickup through that third-party app like Grubhub or Uber Eats, and then you get this perfectly good food that would have been thrown out for a reduced cost. The company is still making money, it's less food for them to throw out, and you also save some money. So this is another great model that some cities can take on when they are uh, tackling food waste if they still want to have some profit and they don't just want to donate everything. Um, and that's understood as well. So something else is feeding animals. That is third in this food recovery hierarchy. Um, food scraps that we toss after dinner each night, they're going to end up in that landfill. They can be saved for feeding farm animals and diverting more of that food waste, especially because a large part of agriculture is growing food for animals. The fourth is industrial uses. Um, so it notes here, you know, did you know that some of the food you toss can be used to create biofuel and bioproducts that could power your car? That's really cool. Um, the fifth on this hierarchy list is composting. So near the bottom of the food waste recovery hierarchy is something every single person is capable of doing. Um, I know that composting is not as simple and clear cut as it's made out to be. Totally get that. There's a whole process that goes into composting, but part of this and part of not only the series but these topics is educating yourself because a lot of people are really disconnected with food systems really disconnected with where food comes from the negative uh, consequences of our actions as it relates to food and agriculture so part of it is yes maybe not the simplest solution and even if composting is not the right thing for you or you feel just really overwhelmed by it and you're like that's not the first step for me to take that is perfectly okay but still educating yourself on composting and how to do it and what that looks like that's really important too and so the last uh, thing on this hierarchy and the least preferred method is incineration or landfill for reasons that we have discussed so here are my final conclusions. Um, collective action, taking accountability for what you do and what you can change and guiding your consumer habits to reflect what you believe in. We vote with our dollar and this can create systemic change. Now with this being said, also question the products uh, that you're buying just because it's marketed as green or sustainable doesn't always mean it is. And this is something called greenwashing. And so research before investing into a product, it's really a good idea as a consumer to do this for anything. Um, a lot of companies will promote sustainability under this green narrative and that narrative being to make money. Green sometimes is for economic profit, uh, not always green for environmental reasons. Now, I think that's okay. If you can save money by doing something that's also going to benefit the environment, go for it. That's a win-win situation. But greenwashing is a situation where it's not benefiting the environment. They're slapping a label on saying, yeah, this is great. This is really good. It's the better alternative. And that's not always true. And again, part of this is learning to educate yourself on these things and to think critically about your consumer habits. Okay, so no one is perfect. Um, certainly, there are people that promote this narrative of zero waste. That is a false narrative as well. I can develop an episode if you'd like on the zero waste and greenwashing um, narratives. Just by existing, we produce waste. Um, 
And the idea of zero waste as well, I personally see it as something that's very privileged too. I don't want anyone to develop this eco-anxiety. This is something that is real. And if you are uh, really heavily involved in the environmental field, you might relate to this. At one point or another, you feel this eco-anxiety where you just feel like you're not doing enough and what you're doing doesn't matter. I don't want anyone to develop that. It's not a criticism on what you do. It's just to get you to think about what you can do because there's something we can each do that is best fit for our lifestyle. So it's to inspire you to make some of these changes, uh, be educated about what's going on and learn to be a critic, not only um, to these companies, but to the policies that exist and think about what can be done. So just do your best and i think even by just listening today and participating in this conversation you are doing uh, your part and so i really appreciate that and i just want to say thank you for listening i hope this episode helped further educate you on this topic and provide a reliable source of information to question quick headlines and participate in respectful discourse on a subject that affects us all until next time yardners Thank you.